Aloha ka menini me ka popolo. Heia no hoia i ka lau papa. Kalaha ka nenue o ka nahavele. Moani ke ala ke honiaku. Welcome to The Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and this time I have for you a topic which the folks at the Red Nation podcast would call a yoded topic, and that usually means kind of high on peyote, so sometimes it can refer to settlers who are you know, getting a little bit uh, pretendian or something, like taking, uh, appropriating uh, different aspects of indigenous culture and uh, running with it in funny directions. And sometimes they use this term to just talk about uh, parapolitics type uh, weird, you know, high weirdness kind of uh, topics in general. Right, and it's and we definitely have both of those today. I'll be introducing a theory by the archaeologist Brian Hayden, and it's it's a major. We're really bringing the paleo parapolitics in a book called "The Power of Ritual in Prehistory: Secret Societies and Origins of Social Complexity." And uh, yeah, I gotta say, it's it's a really interesting read. It's structured in this funny way that it, that it kind of doesn't have an introduction that tells you what it's really about. So I'm gonna try to actually give you that introduction that is not there. Uh, I, I also kind of suspect that that introduction is there to keep people like me from, people like us from, from reading it, at least not too quickly, right? Um, but I will uh, try to provide that, right? Because it's actually extremely sexy. Uh, the idea is uh, secret societies are something that you begin to see in what are called trans-egalitarian societies. Human societies, most of the time through about 50,000 years ago, when you get in from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic, uh, human societies are very egalitarian and they're very communitarian. They share resources. They have strong conventions of hospitality, right? Uh, And that's a huge part of what allowed us to survive on the African savanna after being basically kicked out of the uh, woodland there, right? Uh, And that was the main thing of our species, right? However, so Brian Hayden is is like a real kind of staunch materialist, definitely trying to find the laws of motion of class society, archaeology as a discipline, looking for patterns and seeing, yeah, people go through these same transformations, uh, all different places, right? Uh, that would be in contrast, I think, to the Davids of the dawn of everything, right? Uh, they're much more kind of uh, following the anthropologist Pierre Clastre, in society against the state, who's much more leaving room for agency, voluntary kind of, you know, decisions. People are choosing the kinds of societies they want to live in. There's a lot of diversity. There's seasonality, you know. People live one way at one time of the year and another way at another time. And, you know, the real difference for the Davids is, is that we got stuck. You know, we, not that we were always egalitarian before and now we're always not, right? 
is that we did all different things before. We had all kinds of diversity. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, even physically, uh, if you go back to really that moment in uh, the times back in Africa, you know, uh, when everyone was in Africa, and we had uh, many more different kinds of humans, right? Hominids, early hominids we're talking about. This is even before modern humans, uh, which appear about 200,000 years ago, right? And you see just a, a great panoply, a great uh, march of, of people who are big and people who are really small and people who have lots of hair uh, in places that nobody has hair today and uh, all different things, right? Uh, compared to that, all of the variation that exists in different human beings today uh, is just nothing, right? It's nothing. And so, yeah, and, and socially as well, no doubt, yeah, there must have been just every single kind of thing uh, being tried. There's, there's a lot to that. I really like that, you know, I really like that too. Uh, but so Brian Hayden is kind of fighting, though, the, the opposite battle. Because, right, if there are no patterns at all, on the other hand, you know, then there's nothing we can do to sort of materially change, act to change reality. We can just, uh, you know, if, and if we don't have the reality, the society that we want, it's just because we don't want it enough, et cetera. You know, we don't have enough faith and we're left in this very liberal uh, space. So that's no good either. So Brian Hayden is definitely looking for the laws of motion. And the real kind of promise of it here, actually, that he doesn't get into until like his penultimate chapter talking about uh, applications for archaeology of this. Uh, but his, he wants to take evidence from all this different ethnographic research, uh, a lot of which comes from very problematic sources, right? And it's been used for very problematic things. And so that's actually the main uh, body of this episode is a conversation with my friend Lai Hall. Uh, who is an organizer. So he is uh, an indigenous person from the northwest of Turtle Island, right, under the settler state of Canada at the moment. Uh, and he can take us through kind of, you know, this from a very first-person kind of point of view, right, which is really extremely important uh, because uh, the, the kind of societies there, right, they have these institutions called potlatches, and that would be, in that case, you know, the locus of one of these types of secret societies that Brian Hayden is trying to analyze. Um, and so those secret societies sometimes would involve, you know, actually in that case, you know, some of the ethnography is not extremely clear whether uh, this is literal or just kind of symbolic or just kind of threatened or, or something, right? Um, but in other cases of secret societies, okay, especially, I'll get to another thing, uh, many cases of these, uh, you have as part of basically like a great big harvest festival that involves enormous gifts, gifts giving to the, the whole community as a whole, but on the part of particular uh, elite people. Okay, and you, you start getting these ranks, you know, there are elite people who are beginning to monopolize surplus, basically, right? Um, on the whole, it's a very, you know, benign thing. They're giving gifts away and all of this, right? Um, but as part of it, the, the leaders of this, the ones that belong to the secret societies, those are like the entry fees to learn dances and also to do kind of maybe hidden rituals, right? And sometimes some of these rituals involve sort of terrorizing the rest of the community with uh, scary demons and, and uh, supernatural forces that only these elites can really protect them from, right? And sometimes it involves human sacrifice and cannibalism in these secret societies, uh, okay? And in the case of uh, Turtle Island, you know, all kinds of indigenous peoples, these aspects or alleged aspects of them have been 
justifications for colonization and continued colonization and liquidation of traditional culture, uh, banning the potlatch, banning the ghost dance when you talk about the Great Plains indigenous peoples, right? Uh, this is all, you know, and and it's just, you know, if if we who are, you know, whatever, parapolitics-pilled, we know that uh, the sickos, even today, and especially in, you know, your, our Anglo-Saxon-dominated world, we have all of the same things happening, you know, no, no less, a hundred times worse, a million times worse things happening uh, in the kinds of class struggle that we have, both, both esoterically and exoterically, right? We know this. And one of Hayden's main points, Hayden's actual point here is that we should be looking at European archaeological sites and Near Eastern archaeological sites, places that are considered to be the cradle of so-called civilization and are never read in this way. They don't read them through this lens, but he is arguing, Hayden wants to say, we should look at all these different places, Lascaux in France, you know, uh, Stonehenge, uh, interestingly, places in Britain, like nowhere has really been properly excavated. And that is the same as in Japan as well, where the Imperial Household Agency claims descent from a lot of these families that, that may or may not have created any given Kofun tomb. And so they don't get excavated because it's like, you know, that's our relatives. We can't, you know, you, you can't excavate that. So, which is understandable, but, you know, then we don't know. And we, uh, we don't know anything about that. And we also don't know hardly anything about it in Britain for similar reasons. Uh, but look, there's all kinds of evidence that Brian Hayden is pointing out in uh, the, the late chapters, late on, it, his whole point is actually, yeah, let's look at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, uh, Jerf al-Ahmar in Syria, and a uh, place in Crete, right, on the island of Crete. There, you know, all these different places you have evidence of human sacrifice and cannibalism, uh, probably ritual cannibalism taking place in these kind of secret society hideouts that are way too small to be any kind of universal community gathering place usually it's a very narrow cave kind of underground and it'll have sculptures of not sculptures and and pictures not of uh ancestral figures or uh, that's a different thing when it's ancestral figures you might um associate that with clan based uh ritual activities but actually what we have are kind of these power animals which tend to be you know i don't know bears sharks wolves uh kind of things Right, and that tends to be more closely associated with secret societies, uh, in what are called trans-egalitarian. You know, and this is the broad kind of broad strokes model that Brian Hayden is talking about. He's not saying it always happens. It's not saying it happens everywhere. Uh, it's a what is it a a, a probabilistic approach, and uh, yeah, comparative uh, approach. You know, basically like look at the whole panorama across the globe, and then when you look at everywhere, you can kind of see these big broad lines and then maybe we can get at an idea of some kind of pattern where uh, trans-egalitarian society comes into being. It's where you begin to get a, um, not only do you have surplus, not everywhere you have surplus do you get this, right? So again, there's agency there. Sometimes people don't happen to choose to do this, right? Or maybe they have strong uh, mechanisms of equalizing, equalizing mechanisms, right? 
Like we talked about, uh, you know, Southern African hunter-gatherers uh, insult the meat. They always ritually kind of like say, oh, what is this little meat that you brought back? It's no good or something, you know, and that's a way of keeping a strong hunter from sort of getting a, a greater reputation or something and eventually sort of securing a higher social position, right? And and even this, so again, beginning, middle, and end, you got to say, this has been used... Uh, for horrible uh, purposes to basically say, to, to only point at uh, indigenous peoples who in whatever way were perceived to, to be, you know, uh, doing, having these trans-egalitarian structures, right? And the elements of class struggle that are present in those and the little bits of uh, aggrandizement, right? And monopolization of surplus, sometimes violence, uh, that are present there, you know, that alone is singled out and that alone becomes like a justification for uh, banning their religion, get, taking away all, all kinds of civil rights, taking away their land, right? Uh, which is nonsense. Uh, we don't want to go there at all. And it may be that any given case uh, may not be as uh, exploitative, right? It may not be as exploitative as the white anthropologists were depicting it as right like these early ethnographers this is the problem of the data too is that that data that we have i mean first of all there's no such thing as pure data that's divorced from the way in which it was gathered and who gathered it and when and stuff but hayden talks about this you have to take the data really from this sweet spot where the secret societies still there's memory of pre-contact like what it was really like and then also there are people who are willing to talk about it because they realize that, yeah, basically their whole way of life is being destroyed anyway, and they may as well just tell someone about it to preserve it for posterity, right, tragically. So, you know, that limits your, your data, you know, your, and it's all citations from, you know, 1898 or whatever. And in many cases, we do have reason to doubt some of this data. Maybe at some point that does begin to knock down the legs of the table here on us because, however, though, you know, it is what it is. Uh, there's data from West Africa, e Central and Eastern Africa, Polynesia, different places around uh, the Pacific Ocean. And... From the data that is laid out here, you can see uh, very similar patterns, right, uh, in trans-egalitarian societies. Or also complex hunter-gatherers is another term that you have. Complex, you know, they're beginning to have social complexity, right? That's that, that subtitle here, Secret Societies and the Origins of Social Complexity. You know, I don't want to be involved in trading in essences, and I don't want to be trading in, in stages, rigid stages, right? Uh, it's very possible that you know, indigenous people are not somehow living in the past. Indigenous people are living in the, in the, in the present and they will live in the future and they're choosing freely uh, what they want to do given the, uh, given the material uh, world around them, right, at any given time. So that's all, that's all there. You know, there's, there isn't a point too much. Uh, sometimes we get, you know, in some quarters, like I know of some, in the sort of online world, we got some uh, vampire hunters that can sometimes get into really pretty outright like ideas that people who don't have too much contact with Abrahamism uh, might be, you know, really sort of like demon uh, infested or, or something. Uh, right. Which I don't think is true. Um, although I have to, you know, so the content of some of these, the, the setup, right. Of the ideology in a lot of these secret societies um Many, many ethnographers use the word terror or terrorist 
to talk about this. Uh, the idea that um, you know they're they're experts of terror or experts of fright, experts of you know, and and even with that, so wearing masks and stuff, um, there there's at least some portion of the population that really does believe that the masked figures that come out when these rituals happen are actually dangerous spirits and so on, right? So I do uh, a certain percentage of the population, you know, he sort of talks about how always there's maybe 20% that really believe in it and there's maybe, you know, 50% or whatever that that would be sort of like a silent majority that maybe kind of have their doubts but they're happy to just shut up and let it go or maybe they believe in it in some kind of symbolic register and whatever, Right, it's more complicated, and then maybe you have a minority that are actively struggling against the secret society, and so the a characteristic is that they uh, would draw on shamanistic religious practices that exist in really egalitarian societies, but now they're attached to expensive initiation fees and exotic ritual paraphernalia that you have to use for them, and uh, so they become you know an engine of accumulation. Of wealth, and also in every case of wealth uh, as a means of power over others. You know, the Davids in the Dawn of Everything are keen to divorce those two things and say they don't always go together, but they certainly do go together. You know, all these cases that are here, and this may be a kind of moment of the birth of our world system. Although I don't want to put too much weight on that. You know, I don't believe in the essences and stuff. Oh, this is the moment when an essence, a new essence, came into being because you know you think about. Whatever that thing is about, uh, you know, the, the cells in early Precambrian fish that later developed into the, the thing that's necessary for eyes to see light, right, were originally cells for something completely different. So I, I think that it could be that as well. You know, it's, it's quite – and there's plenty of, you know, just – so uh, in one of my conversations with Lai Hall, I definitely said, like, if if I could live in a potlatch society, I would be so happy. Like, it'd be so much better than what we have now. Um, no question whatsoever, you know, even if it is just a, some incipient, you know, class struggle happening and whatever. There's much more sort of, there's mechanisms of leveling and, and equality in there as well, still. And also, I'm going to be discussing this more in a premium episode on this topic, but um, I'm a Leninist. So, you know, whenever, if the ruling class has some weapon, the first thing I want to do, hey, can we get that? Can we appropriate that? How can we use that? And I think uh, there were, there's a whole picture. Hayden is deliberately excluding any kind of counter-secret societies. Uh, even although even his his East African examples are sometimes sort of contaminated with uh, anti-colonial secret societies. So, you know. Uh, that's complicated, you know, like a, there, there's a whole ecosystem of all different secret societies doing different things, you know, different groups. So, uh, you know, we can be paleo-Leninists, perhaps. That's maybe that should be the title of the premium episode I'm going to do. You know, it's just the same as anything else, you know, every, anybody else. And, and so the, here we really get into uh, a national question, a colonial question here. You know, if you have decolonizing a nation that has a uh, maybe going through socialist construction or and or some kind of restoration of an indigenous model, you know, you don't have to call it communism, I don't care, but, you know, uh, anything that brings about a stateless, classless society, uh, right, is, is A-OK by me. And at this point, I would take even some, re- some reduction, some, some kind of, you know, stopping this wave that we're on, dispelling this enormous tidal wave of class struggle that we are clearly on for at least the last 6,000 years, 
right? Whatever you want to call it. So Brian Hayden's main point is we should look at Europe. We should look at the so-called uh, old world, the cradle of so-called civilization, and see these same patterns, right? That's the main point. Which, by the way, when, when I had this conversation with Lai Hall, he wasn't responsible for reading this book, right? So he didn't, he didn't read it. Uh, he had just kind of heard about it a little bit, read skimmed some parts, right? And so, therefore, you know, due to this weird structure of it, it has kind of a mystery novel structure. So his role is to, you know, I, was, I read the book and I was telling him sort of what it was about and he's reacting to that. So that's what, that's what that is. So we turn our secret society radar on the cradle of so-called civilization. And when you start to do that, that becomes super interesting, right? And I think you can see some really interesting things right there. You know, you see actually some of the most clear evidence is, is there. You know, you have these structures that are very fancy with plaster, plaster floors and things, uh, but too small to be any kind of large meeting space for like the majority of the people. There's no big storage space, like it's a granary or something, Right, it's very narrow and it's far away, maybe from the habitation, and you see evidence of feasting and also evidence for cannibalism. Uh, you know, bo- human bones that are have scrapes from scraping the meat off. You know, uh, and they'll be found together with other food garbage. So we often see uh, it's often practiced from like dried and preserved human bodies, uh, kind of like a little prosciutto, prosciutto man, uh, there in the in the little initiation cave. And uh, that tracks absolutely with like age of exploration stuff that I study. Actually, part of the the incipient drug trade in the early modern period with Europeans is uh, medicine called mumia, which supposedly would cure and or protect you from the black plague if you if you took some of it. It would be and the best way is the best kind to get is from maybe like a 24 year old redheaded man who was broken on the wheel on a Thursday, you know, and like collected under a full moon or whatever, you know, there's all these stipulations. And then you soak that in olive oil and or maybe uh, spirits, uh, distilled alcohol. And then you you drink that, right? And there's even there's even records in uh, in Japan, like anti-Christian literature, hidden uh, Christian literature, talking about, uh, you know, whether the, the accusation that actually uh, hidden Christians are actually, which could well, ha- you know, somebody might have had some of that stuff coming through uh, Iberian uh, networks, right? Uh, so this, this goes right down uh, to, the, to the present day, I think. Oh, and of course, there's the current thing in Utah. Amazing that, you know, the, somehow Chapo beat uh, Truanon to the Franklin scandal, uh, but... Truanon then in turn actually beat anyone that I know of that's much more reputable uh, to this Utah thing. And well, but when you get to the end of their episode, you realize it's because their conclusion is that there's actually no, no there there. Maybe that, and maybe that it really is the case, and that's why nobody else has really gotten into it yet. Uh, but I'll wait to see what other people say. Yeah, and so, uh, for example, in Crete, we have uh, a Nemospelia site the Anemospelia site, uh, we have a collapse of meeting house, which results in a human sacrifice, which is preserved in progress. This is on Crete, right near Greece, right? Classic cradle of uh, so-called civilization. So here's an, an, a little quote. Secret societies at Anemospelia generally predated the period of sus- consolidated state palaces, and it seems possible that they played important roles in the formation of state organizations. 
or perhaps came into conflict with the centralized palace polities, much as suggested for secret societies by some researchers elsewhere. Right. So palace leaders may have co-opted earlier secret societies and incorporated them into palace organizations where secret shrines existed and human sacrifices with cannibalism seem to have continued in secret. Right. So you have this open religion and exoterically the state religion is about, you know, the great the good God who gives us the grain and, and everything. And then but then secretly some portion of the leadership actually is is doing this older kind of secret society type religion with shamanism that, uh, you know, I don't know if it, it always is worship of evil powers, but I think a lot, you know, these power animals suggest that often it is for some people at least, right? Again, any given case, I don't know. I'm not saying that, you know, certain indigenous people especially are always doing this because there's evidence often that that's not the case at all, right? Uh, and that, you know, nobody is always doing the same thing. Right. Nor should they be. Uh, OK, but but uh, power, it's very often about power, uh, sometimes power over to these evil powers to protect the community from them. And very often that's the appeal of the kind of terror and the magician aspect, you know, really think of Michael Aquino in his uh, vampire suit here big time. Uh, that's what so many of the ethnographers say. They're experts in in sort of fear um, and uh, right, getting sometimes certain Californian secret societies would uh, they were very gender based in some cases, and and all the men would would keep the women in the homes. They had to stay at home, and the men would go up in the mountains and make a bunch of noise. They'd have like technologies like bull roarers and wooden flutes to simulate all kinds of spirit voices, and uh, you know, say we're having this big battle, and then maybe masked figure would come out, and they would put him, you know get him and put him down, fight him and beat him and uh, then come back and say, hey, look, we protected you. And, you know, maybe a certain percentage of the population will be extremely grateful then. And and then in Western Africa, you actually have the gender binary reversed and it's female secret societies terrorizing the men. This is something that actually happens. This is maybe a little part of Japanese culture that I see. You know, parents will say to to kids, you know, who are not behaving uh, it, and it really works. Uh, I'm often surprised. Uh, and there are smartphone apps that simulate this too. The smartphone app simulates, you know, the Oni is calling. And uh, if you push, you open the app, uh, your phone will ring a kind of fake ringtone. And you can turn it, okay, I'll put him on speakerphone. Uh, the Oni is calling. And he'll say, Right, like he'll say in a very kind of like Western Japanese kind of low prestige dialect, right? Is there a kid here who's not obey- listening to his parents? I heard, you know, so I'm, should I come and get him? And then, you know, you, the parent, can say, uh, uh, if they're saying, no, no, I'll, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. Then you, the parent, can say, oh, he says he's going to be good. And then maybe you press that button on the app, and then the Oni will say, uh, okay, well, you just let me know if uh, you have any more trouble with him, all right? Uh, so, and then I'll talk to you later. Right. So the parent is doing exactly this secret society thing, which occurs in a community context, too, around holidays like Setsubun or in the north. They have like Namahage comes around and terrifies all the children. And basically the children are asked to promise that they'll behave. And right. I mean, in northern Europe, I think you have Krampus, etc. So uh, in a secret society context, sometimes what's happening is that these aggrandizers 
are saying to the community at large, you know, we have this special relationship with these very dangerous forces that are out there, right? And they're evil and stuff, but we can control them. And we do uh, often older shamanic uh, practices, uh, ecstatic experiences, sacred experiences, uh, often induced through sensory deprivation, induced through like sweat lodges, a sauna kind of experience, alone, being alone in the mountains, all these kinds of things, vision quests, sometimes drugs are things that they do, but then they also connect that to this idea of getting power over evil forces that threaten the community and then telling the community about that and using that to kind of terrorize the community. Um, that would be a hallmark of uh, this kind of secret society, right? Um, whereas before, maybe that wasn't so much the case. Um, you also see it like a medical aspect of it too, where it's like um, uh, the healers, healers will, will sort of somehow make people sick, maybe through the power of suggestion. This is what the ethnographers say. Uh, it's unclear how exactly they do it. Um, you know, do they, I don't think they had bioweapons or anything, but, uh, you know, they actually somehow, uh, make people think that they're sick and that they need to pay a bunch of money to the healer to then heal them. Right. And this is, I mean, it's in the ethnographic literature in all these different places. Right. So, uh, whatever that means. Um, and this seems to be a, a mechanism, right? So that's the theory. That's the theory anyway. Right. Um, in Jerfal Ahmar in Syria, you have a decapitated woman with her fingers dug into the ground. Um, you have headless bodies in the art on the walls. You have skulls underneath the pillars, so stuck there. Um, and then you have three cooked human heads in the hearth. Um, so this, you know, this seems to be uh, putting putting like a body. Also, you see um, Gobekli Tepe uh, has a lot of uh, that's in Turkey right? Um, has a lot of scraped and cut human bones mixed with animal remains, likely from feasting. So again, an evidence of cannibalism there. You have decorated skulls at Gobekli Tepe, much like those of society leaders in Melanesia. So around Polynesia, especially um, leaders of the secret society begin to be buried in secret society grounds or maybe somewhere off in the mountains in a secret location because sometimes they would actually sort of tell people that that leader never died and they would hide the death entirely um, and just say they're, they're out there somewhere, you know, kind of a Mahdi kind of deal, right? Whereas before, the, the nor in those communities, it would be more normal to be buried under the floor of the house where you live. And ancestors of a given clan will just be buried there, right? Because the locus of human community is very much the clan up until that point. And a real pure sort of separation out of the various elements would tell you that another sort of clan-based thing is if like the grades, there might be different ranks and grades, but if everybody gets to go through them and at just at certain times in their life, then that's just a rite of passage. And it's not class-based and it's not a secret society, right? And as Lai Hall pointed out to me, uh, th these things mix later. So, you know, and I'm very glad. So I'm doing this, I'm doing this kind of introduction with the benefit of conversations with Lai Hall, which is crucial. Aloha i anoa e Ikane e mai a kaua paupini.
And this is another another thing that Brian Hayden does not do. So puzzlingly, you know, because there are indigenous people, they're members of all of these communities that he's talking about who are alive today and are inheritors of this tradition in whatever way. And he doesn't make any attempt to talk to any of them, like as far as we can see. Uh, you know, you could say, oh, that's because, uh, you know, the traditions will be different now. You know, this is after contact. It, it isn't really relevant. Um, but surely it's not ir- irrelevant completely right you know i mean it's that's we, we can't do that I mean, that's not, like in japanology right you can't do that you can't just not read any japanese books uh even even though uh you know japan had a, a empire japan was a capitalist power real ass capitalist power with a with a very dangerous real bourgeoisie uh from earlier on than we normally think and uh, there's a whole post-war industry of sort of Japanese uniqueness, sort of Nihonjinron already, you know, and I've dealt, dealt over the years, talked at length with all kinds of people who get tons of grant money to, to expound upon the ways in which uh, Japanese, you know, Japanese cultural uniqueness, totally different from anything Western, you know, the reason why this particular kind of class division is, class division is completely peaceful and it's completely okay in Japan because we have this wonderful uh, Japanese culture which makes everyone just sort of feel the peace of nature and one with the four seasons and that's why uh, nobody ever resents being a downtrodden worker in Japan. You know, it's kind of so you you know you can't you don't want to go into that, and you could go into that. You know, so there's a there's a continuum. You know, I deal with some of the most uh, the greatest masters of self orientalization and self exoticization ever. You know, just we're all born enlightened and we're just magical beings. That uh, you know, there there could be all kinds of well, and, and notice though, right? Like there's all kinds of grisly aspects of pre-modern Japanese culture, but that all gets sort of shrugged off. It's just like, oh, that's non-Western. You wouldn't understand. You know, that's just all. We can dismiss that because, all right. And and even modern stuff, you know, you get these people that get the big, big money grants I've talked to who uh, they want to say that uh, no matter what kind of crushing uh, oppression might exist, uh, if it's Japanese, you know, it's like the meme uh, thing, Mm, boring thing in Japan. Yeah, whoa, man, oh, whoa. On the other hand, though, you know, like as we discuss, um, a lot of these indigenous communities are just clinging to their patrimonies or matrimonies or their their uh, cultural heritage, you know, and and it's not the time to sort of bring up, you know, some stuff about oh, you know, actually there is. I mean, maybe it is the time. Maybe it's always the time. You know, I'm I'm a Leninist, and so I would say, you know, maybe you can use the dance society right now, deal with all these things, make it really anti... And maybe that's what it was to begin with. Maybe, you know, things can move in different directions. It's just because indigenous people were in this particular uh, spot on whatever sort of continuum at that moment. You know, their their movement, their their dynamic momentum there might have been actually a place where they were keeping class struggle at bay 
through these structures uh, for most of the time. And then maybe like the ethnographers come by at this really terrible time in colonization and they capture this really unflattering picture. But actually most of the time it was functioning in, a, in quite a different way. That's totally possible. You have to like, like um, Ching Pao Yu in, um, in uh, the foreign languages press books about uh, revolutionary and counter-revolution in China the exact same thing like state ownership of enterprise or something can work in a capitalist construction way or it can work to construct socialism and it depends on the whole movement of the whole system right at that moment but but it's also not uh productive to to paint it as some kind of idealized you know edenic edenic thing that will automatically just because actually you know i do think when you get into reconstruction uh, there's going to be all kinds of class struggle uh, but but you know as a settler myself uh i it's none of my fucking business i trust uh everybody to work it out you know and people do work it out and people are working it out in the places where they're getting to uh work it out independently and so uh although each of the sort of uh table the legs on which this table rests uh maybe challenge they'd be subject to challenge because they come from this really flawed ethnographic data but nevertheless uh the table that we're talking that we're sitting at here uh is all about questioning uh european and other kind of cradle of civilization uh ethnographical or archaeological in- interpretations of different archaeological sites uh there's a scholar called hodder uh, who wants to claim that the remains from Çatalhöyük in Turkey were this is a nonviolent and egalitarian society, despite things like scraped human bones together with food garbage. You have three infants buried under a door sill, very much like it's a, a sacrifice, and a skull under each post of the house. Um, he believes in ideology as the driver of material structure, right? Um, contra Marx, obviously. Uh, right? The idea that, you know, oh, just complex uh, cosmological ideas. Uh, people came up with really great ideological structures, and that's what drove all of this complexity and, and everything, right? So that's a big, you know, thing of Hayden's. He has a, a prehistory of religion that I've read a bit of, too. Um, that one is much less, I mean, it's not concerned so much with this secret society thing as far as I've read. Uh, it's more about sort of what was before that. And he, there too, is rejecting kind of ideological explanations for things. Uh, and the way that, one way that he does this is he tells his undergraduate students, like, uh, if you think that you can, that prehistoric peoples were just super religious, they had super, you know, strong religious beliefs, and that's why they did, uh, built pyramids or whatever, you know. Uh, just see, I would challenge you, I'll bet you money, whatever, how much, uh, to go and uh, convince a bunch of people that for some religious reason they have to go and uh, build you a pyramid or whatever, right? I don't think you can do it, but you can do it if you uh, create a fraternity, for example, right? You make a fraternity and oh, if you get to, if you do, if you build this big pyramid, you know, then you get to be a member of the secret club and you get to wear the cool hat and you get to be in the parade and you know, these are reasons why people actually do these these things, uh, according to Hayden. And I think that's at least an important side of it. Okay, that's what I'll say. Um, right, so Hayden versus Hodder is this kind of thing. Um, Hodder, he even quotes Hodder, this, he fears the interpretations will become infected with the cross-cultural model. 
So that means that if you take into account these uh, North American, uh, Polynesian, African cases of secret society, that infects the, the pure data from Chatul Hoyuk. And you, you can't do that. You know, he wants to believe that Chatul Hoyuk is, is uh, egalitarian. Okay. Right. And this is a standard idea going back to Dorkheim and Weber uh, that ritual and religion always uh, serve as social glue quote-unquote. But of course, we see uh, the very opposite in all these different cases, right? People often say social complexity, and this would be known as functionalist as well. Everything that we observe must have a function. So therefore, uh, if there are these secret societies, there's all this religious complexity and and roles and and paraphernalia, expensive exotic paraphernalia and complex cosmologies and stuff, uh, well, that means it must have somehow played into the security and safety and the stability of communities. And you have even based on that uh, prior assumption, you have to create ideas like population stress, uh, which Hayden also rejects the idea that, you know, your population gets to a certain point, it's going to be stress. Uh, you know, if you have, if you don't have enough food, you plant more food. People and people do this. You know, there's not, that's not, that in itself is not a problem. Population stress, according to Hayden, is not a real thing. Or the decisive benefit of calendrical and other cosmological knowledge, right? I mean, isn't, isn't that ruling class idealism? Because the reality is that peasants exist first. People who, the people have the wisdom and the knowledge to produce the food, and they don't need a, a calendar that is uh, taught to them by a priesthood in order to do that. They know that already, you know, the, and doesn't the priesthood actually come after? And that's, it's more about uh, this kind of, these kind of secret society dynamics, isn't it? So this would be, yeah, the, again, the functionalist or communitarian model would say that any increase in complexity must be, f- by definition, for the benefit of the community. Hayden is saying, well, look at all these ways that when we look at ethnographic accounts of societies extant in modernity that had similar structures, uh, you can see a lot of ways they're functioning actually to divide the community, to create uh, social uh, stratification, right, and to benefit only a certain part of the community. It's not necessarily only serving the benefit of the entire community. And you get some archaeologists, based on the chronology that you can see, they seem to get the chronology wrong, saying that uh, the secret societies come to assist the chiefs and assist the kings with ruling, when in fact, the secret societies arise first where there are no kings. And then in some cases, they, they then appoint a chief or a king, often sometimes someone of much lower status than themselves, as a kind of figurehead, someone to put out there, right, in the front, and sort of... Uh, and this may be the way that, that really kings and, and central governments get going. So isn't that a tantalizing uh, sort of paleo-parapolitics point for us, right? This is a, th- a theory that we can uh, maybe do a lot with, I think. I, I, I want to just maybe put that out there. Maybe that's about all I want to do for now, because uh, we have this wonderful conversation with Lai Hall. It's as if, you know, you were studying development of feudalism. You're studying the development of... Uh, you know, any other kind of uh, relations of production, right? And you could talk to a real, uh, you know, you could talk to a real medieval knight or a samurai or, uh, you know, uh, a factory worker in uh, early industrial age London, uh, right? You know, uh, 
apart from the question, there is the colonial question and the national question of, of sort of, you know, these are people that are just trying to hang on to their national culture at this point, and they should do that, right? And it's a little, tri- it's a little touchy to talk about these aspects of, of class uh, struggle that are there because they've been used in such horrible ways, okay? But yeah, that, I think a medieval knight is a good example. It's like you can talk to a medieval knight. Um, you don't need to spend your time telling the medieval, you know, you live in an exploitative society. You should really fix that. No, you don't have to do that. But uh, you can learn about how do these uh, uh, structures work and stuff, right? And that's all we want to do. We want to learn the, the laws of motion, as Engels says, the laws of motion of class society, right, and of, of relations of production, I'm Fergal Slumper, and I have anointed you with the Ulicon grease of the kingless generation. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you mind if I do like a quick little introduction slash Not at uh, all. disclaimer? Yeah. Kind of sweet. yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so I, I go by, I go by Lye Hall. I'm a mixed indigenous person living somewhere on Turtle Island. My dad's white and my mom is a lot of different indigenous nations um trying to trying to maintain OPSEC to a reasonable degree because I have a big boy job um but you know that all that is to say that uh you know I'm not I'm not super comfortable not necessarily identifying like where where my family is from and where I'm from because I I certainly don't want to come on the podcast kind of like uh just sort of like portending to be like an expert or even someone that's necessarily trusted in community to kind of speak to the things that I'm talking about so uh just you know take what I'm saying with about as much salt as you would take Brian Hayden I guess (laughs) so I I just want to you know I just kind of want to articulate that to the listeners to say just like I I think I'm perhaps a bit more well equipped to speak to these things on a certain level but at the same time, I don't want to uh, I don't want to act as though anything I'm saying is from like a very specific authority. I'm still very much learning about all of this stuff. And there are things that I'm not privy to that I've not been allowed to learn yet. And there's things that I'm, I am privy to, but I'm just not supposed to share because it's just part of the part of the society. Like there's just a lot of things that, yeah, it's just because. And then that should be fine. <laughs> trust that me, I'm not fine. eating people. <laughs> please trust mm-hmm. me, I'm not eating people. <laughs> <laughs> please, uh, people were believe. eating a lot. Pe- they were eating people a lot more in Europe and the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> are the suggestions that uh, the first thing to say, beginning, middle, and end, is is just that any degree of uh, class struggle that exists in any given society is no justification. For for colonization or continued colonization or not ending colonization immediately giving land back. We, if I lived in the turtle Island Northwest, I would want to have land back. And then whatever class struggle is happening, I would want to participate in that as an equal member. I don't know, maybe once a settler, always a settler, but uh, (laughs) now we're not about. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. yeah, from... but there's some to that too. There's some to that too. No, no, I wouldn't, no, you know, no, totally. Oh yeah. No, I understand, I and that's cool. also why, like Hayden, is a bit like the main problem with Hayden is that he's not talking with the people that he's writing about, even though those mm, people yeah. are writing 
scholarship. Uh, it doesn't seem yeah. like he's hot. I don't know if some of those names that he lists are indigenous people. They could be. I but. Well, I, I was curious myself because I, you know, it's, uh, I think I, I was definitely kind of sequestered in, uh, I guess, the, uh, the YouTube do should call it like a safe space or whatever. When I was in university, I've actually. Okay. So you, you but you are, <laughs> yeah. An indigenous person, one of the people that he is talking about. Yeah, when we were going over the, <clears throat> when we were kind of just in preparation for this today, I was reviewing a couple things in the in the book that I felt like I could kind of address with some measure of authority-ish, I guess. But uh, yeah, it was just yeah. out of curiosity. I, I took a look at the citations that he had in there and like, yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of what I, what we were discussing a bit before where my, my main kind of... Uh, leeriness around Hayden comes from the citations that he makes because you like I said like there's there's definitely a bubble when you're taking indigenous studies you know because you're surrounded by indigenous people doing <clears throat> doing work in their whatever just and excuse me for hmm. clearing my throat in a disgusting not at all so this you know this person just got <laughs> over COVID here we should say um you tried to get me are you i don't even know if you're even are you working through it thank you so much for being here uh, first of all no no i'm good i'm good it was like yeah the first couple of days were really fucked i had a fever dream that i was an anthropologist and getting <laughs> airdropped into ukraine to convince the azov <laughs> battalion that like <laughs> nuking the planet would be bad for their lemurian race or some fucking bullshit <laughs> but which is nice. like fucked on itself but then i woke up oh, and yeah. i still thought that i was in the dream like you're I had, doing like, the work in the... oh god <laughs> you're working hard all the time it's definitely working through something <laughs> but um yeah but that, that was my trippiest covid experience my partner had it before i did but or they they didn't they got it after i did but they didn't realize that they had it so they had this like you can kind of see behind me there's like this nice little lot like i think we've oh, got nice. the only place in our city that's got like, <laughs> decent space. but they were like at the top of that thing climbing down and they had their phone in one hand but they let go mm. of the thing with their other just screws loose because of covid and here they fucking fell oh yeah <laughs> oh no just oh no on their ass, like, the whole story. They okay yeah they were good they like like luckily they landed on their butt but it was still it was the most terrifying shit i'd ever heard <laughs> oh god um, but anyway, sorry, back to the adventures the continue. Yeah, yeah I, I just did like a quick yeah. peruse just to see if there's any names that kind of stuck out because there are there are sort of bigger names in indigenous archaeology and, and anthropologies like people like Eldon Yellowhorn, Rudy Reimer, Remux, um, hmm. Roxanne Dunbar Artiz, you know, just sort of yeah, pretty fairly general, but none of them actually before I before I write off Ortiz, let me triple check. But I mean, all that is to say that like Steve's is one that I have ready to read, actually, Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. Oh, hell yeah. Haven't gotten into it yet, but I really want to. Uh, Yeah. So the the people that I mentioned, no, but, you know, it's it's sort of one thing Mm. not to because there is good there is good work by settler archaeologists and anthropologists like uh, Wisdom Sits in Places by um, I want to say Basso but I could be wrong, but wisdom sits in places is a really good example of someone that's doing that work in collaboration and stuff like that. But, you know, it's, mm. so it's, you know, it's, it's one thing not to necessarily cite like indigenous sources directly, but it's another to kind of cite people like, um, people like Franz Boas and people like yeah. Dubrook, Dubrook, 
is that the person but um there's you know, the a, yeah that, there's a lot of like yeah, 1898 and the, and, yeah and the, and the thing that kind of raises my hackles about that is that it's like at the at the time like the anthropologists and archaeologists were being like actively deployed to different indigenous nations especially on the northwest coast because there was just a lot of material wealth there so hmm. you have you have like I, I think i mentioned like the potlatch ban which for for yeah. canadians in, in canada the the indian act is a piece of like it's a very we have like a very uh archaic it's not okay. It's just like a very weird federalist government. And uh, there's there's judi- or jurisdictional division between like provinces and then federal. Um, and indigenous people obviously live in provinces, but the the conditions of their lives are under the, as a mandate of the federal government. But things like healthcare and policing are under the provincial government. So Okay. You know, especially the healthcare thing becomes like a real, um, like bureaucratic nightmare. But uh, all that is to say that um, the Indian Act was a federal piece of legislation that went through a lot of different stages throughout the course of colonization, post the Confederation of Canada, like post Canada becoming a state and not just like, I mean, it still is, but it was no longer on paper, just like a piece of land owned by the Hudson's Bay Company. <laughs> um, but the, da, 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 da. all that is to say that like eventually it became illegal for Indigenous people to practice ceremony or so that included mm. like that, that included things like the potlatch, but then also just like social dances. And yeah, the potlatch ban goes from 1885 to 1951, right? It was also, you know, it's there's I, I don't want to become like, like a bit of a pedant kind of just sort of like rattling off not at all well there's a there is an absolute incentive for right there's a material incentive on boaz's part to depict this sort of whatever kind of basically extreme uh whatever level of of class struggle might have been happening and again that's irrelevant uh but you know people still use that today Right. You shared a, a video yeah. of a right winger sort of saying, oh, you know, have you heard about Skull Island? You know, there wasn't all just sunshine <laughs> and rainbows in the indigenous uh, <clears throat> communities. So so therefore we should keep on colonizing. Right. I think people yeah, still even and say then, that. And exactly. And then and the thing, too, is that there's like any there's still like a deeper layer beyond behind that. that I think that, you know, but I think I've, I've obviously have I've just got my undergrad. So I think you've got like a bit hmm. more fulsome of fulsome of an idea of how this would manifest in the career of someone know. like of someone like Boaz where there's you know these are anthropologists oh, yeah. and okay. under you know, working for institutions that are receiving federal funding yeah and and he was a total superstar that, yeah and, then, and he ended but, up I mean, he, he ended up really rich at the end of his life I think somehow so oh, you know okay. when you when you see that there's, you know like okay this is a major like, <laughs> yeah player. Oh, I mean it's the same thing for like AIM post post wounded knee right like the after that after that very sus split you know the people that were on the side of the contras got acting careers and the people that weren't got cocaine charges which is okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's how that goes yeah Yeah. but we can do a little ethnography on boaz himself there and and sort of you know there should be a meta perspective there for one yeah, well, and I think the meta perspective is that there's there there's just anthropologists and archaeologists working for these institutions, getting federal funding from the government of Canada, 
that, and you know, their mandate was to go in and get ethnological data and compile it for the prestige of the, the state. But the flip side of that is that the state also had a, had a vested interest in instituting things like the potlatch ban and enforcing the reserve system as a means of disenfranchising these people. And not, not, not just for, you know, strictly colonialism's sake, not just for strictly white supremacy's sake, but also for capitalism, right? Like part of the, part of the institution of the reserve system is that, you know, it wasn't just merely sort of like taking people in place, but corralling them in. There was also like right. forced relocations to non-traditional territories. Then, and that information would have been collected by people like Boaz, right? So if you mm-hmm. have friends Boaz kind of collecting this information, being like, well, this is like, yeah, the, I was I was told through these informants that they have like ancestral clam beds here, or oyster farms, or these different they farm different indigenous vegetables here. Uh-huh. And then you know, so for the Indian agent to kind of know this and be like, all right, so let's put them over here closer to the mill site, you know, because mm-hmm. that's that, especially in Alert Bay. That's one thing that you heard a lot is that after the after that dislocation, and you know, it's not just in Alert Bay, but just all over all over Canada. After that dislocation, there's you know, there's less of, of an ability for people to to do their participate in their indigenous life ways, right, or their traditional lifestyle. And as a result, there's like a that vacuum. Obviously, there's they're moved to places where they don't know where the where the food is at. There's no right. cultivated. There's no there's none of that cultivation and farming and from from that nation's practices, right, or not even sort of recognized areas to hunt. So obviously yeah. people are going to have to be diverted into mill work and <clears throat> Dis- dispossession, proletarianization, you get the land, you get the yeah. workers, you get right. Everything. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to, and to, I mean, all that is to say is just kind of coming back around to, to Hayden is just sort of when you, when you're kind of looking at the scholarship and that's, those are the, the citations there, not much yeah. past, you know, like on average, I'd say it's all pre- pre-1970 and yeah and i was gonna say you had the same thing in the plains right the ghost dance is banned yeah in the u.s yeah exactly and i i feel like uh i'm not i'm not super well versed on like the on the trajectory of colonialism in the united states in terms of policy as i am in with the systems in canada and mm-hmm. that's uh that's a big blind spot <laughs> oh well that'd be uh-huh. one for uh, nick S- nick estes or something yeah but, no for real um, i mean I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with them about about this but dang, yeah. but yeah and then well and so per, so hayden like, says yeah, that yeah. you know he says that the reason why he's doing that he does have a statement about that and that it's that <laughs> there's a sweet spot where the leaders of the secret societies are willing to to talk to a settler and tell them oh, about the secret mm. societies right um they would be tight-lipped up until a certain point where they realize that the secret societies are actually going, not going to continue and they might as well just tell someone about it before it disappears. <clears throat> and those are the, yeah. that's like the little window where he's trying to get data from. Uh, he yeah, does say that, it- you know, and the, and the selection here, you know, you kind of think this, this is the first archaeological book okay that I have ever read from cover to cover. <laughs> so I should say that, yeah. okay. I'm an, I'm an academic, but what I know best is Japanese literature, right? But mm. I think that's illuminating, actually, because, you know, you couldn't write a, a book like this not reading any Japanese books, at least not after, like, 1960. 
right? Yeah. So you do, you do have a, a first generation of post-war Japanology who all were in like, you know, they were plucked out of French departments at Princeton and put into the army and directed the occupation. And then they come back and get professorships in Japanology. So you do have a generation <laughs> like that, but, um, yeah. and they haven't read sh- shit in Japanese and they don't, you know, think that it's important to, because it's still, they see themselves as part of this post-war project of molding Japan actively. In yeah. Fact. Yeah. Totally. And, and, and you know, I, you know, I, I certainly don't want to come off like I'm, I'm just trying to like, going out of my way to poke holes in like Brian Hayden's scholarship or even like the, the kind of core idea of the book. Cause I think mm. that there is, well, we should, I, I mean, yeah, I think we can do a lot with it regardless. I think this mm-hmm. is something that, yeah, I think, um, I think I, I kind of want to come back to the ethnography yeah. of Franz Boas a little bit though, too, because I think yeah. what, what you just mentioned there reminded me him, uh, him kind of citing that, that narrow field in history of, uh, of the informants coming forward from those societies is, Again, it's kind of like a, a tricky thing to think about when you're considering sort of the way that archaeology has been carried out in Canada. I mean, not in that even in that specific context, you know, like a all kind of all colonial archaeology, I think, is suspect in the way that, you know, the early Japanology was too, right, where it's, you know, yeah. middle middle class men just kind of getting sent over there to administer the colony and coming back, mm. kind of flaunting themselves as experts of Japan because they... I don't know, probably, probably raped in village. I feel like that's, <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. but I mean, in, in the case of Franz Boas, so, so the thing to kind of know about Franz Boas is that his primary informant was a fellow named George Hunt, who was half Tlingit and half English, who married into, uh, so the Kwakwakwak is comprised of several different tribes and George Hunt married into a, a nation called the Nakwakta, which they have a distinct language, but it does have some, it does have Waukeshaan qualities. And I think that they, they have like mm-hmm. a very long historical relationship with the Kwakwakwa. And, okay. you know, obviously uh, I, I can't remember the name for the Tlingit language, but uh, he like George Hunt was fluent in that and it's, it's a Waukeshaan dialect. So it's has some, mm-hmm. some similarities to Kwakwakwa and Nakwakta. I mean, all this is to say that so George Hunt was sort of a not necessarily an unreliable informant in that he was purposefully distorting information, but because there's that language barrier and also a cultural barrier in the sense that Nakwata are very culturally distinct from Kokwakiwak people, but also there was knowledge inside the nation that he was from an, a Hudson's Bay Company family. So, wow. uh, <clears throat> so George Hunt's father worked for the Hudson's Bay Company post in Fort Rupert. And he spent some time in Alaska, which is where he met his mother, who's Tlingit. So basically what you have happen is that he has, you know, collecting the ethnographic data to the best of his ability, but the best of his ability isn't super great because even uh, there there are certainly class distinctions in Kokokowak society as there are in my own nations, right? Like my, my, for my own nation, you know, there is like a slave class and, you know, it's... uh, it's an interesting thing to think about now to kind of consider the way that that, yeah, not, I mean, not to mention just sort of the, this is a bit, a bit more contemporary, but things like blood quantum and sort of the, the implementation of these sort of like very, like just crumbs, you know, these very crumbs is like piss poor benefits that come with carrying like in, like in Canada, it's Indian status. And I guess in the States, it might be enrollment. Um, okay. 
So I, I, I understand that, you know, this is very hearsay and unsighted on my part, but something that I remember hearing was like a friend of mine from California, having a lot of his family members trying to fight disenrollment because yeah, termination was the policy, right? right? They're trying yeah. to terminate, they say. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and then you on have the things like the colonial ideas around like blood quantum, right? Where it's like, you could, I mean, thank God the listeners can't see me, but you can see me. I'm a very pale Indian. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm mixed, but there's these sort of like the, these things about rape, like these elements of racialization and like the biological, like sort of imposed racializations and stuff as a way to kind of meet out the category of the Indian, right? And that's, I think it's, that's definitely getting away from the ritual aspect that we're talking about a bit. But Well, it um, would connect to the national question and the colonial question. That's another kind of table mm, of contents item that I would want to get out true. on oh, the yeah, table, right? Your notes, There's dude. the national question, <laughs> colonial question, like, is there a line? What is the continuum? You know, you have obviously Israel, you have uh, Japan. Yeah. Uh, that's another thing about Japan. Like a lot of Japanese scholars do say nonsense sometimes, right? Um, yeah. which is, which is ahistorical and it's nationalist and it's, uh, fascist, right? Sometimes. And so calling that out is, should be a part of anyone's project, uh, whether you're Japanese or not. Yeah. But how do you do that? You know, you got to cite all the books, you got to re- read all the Japanese books, obviously. And right. Yeah. That's what we would and do. The, and, and that's, yeah. And, and that's the thing when it comes to indigenous archaeology and indigenous like the indigenous ethnology piece right is where uh, I, I think I, I hope that it went through that but there's like a paper that was written by um, by a uh, reclama Klutzi and the uh, chief Adam Dick who is um, yeah I saw that this morning I didn't have a chance to look at yeah, it but... yeah I definitely, I definitely recommend taking a look at it because they they, they really nicely summarize the sort of like it's like they actually have a really great tight chapter that kind of unpacks the ethnography behind Franz Boas's informants and just sort of opens up perfect okay so that is yeah that's balance balance on every ledger (laughs) kwakwakawak resource values and traditional ecological management yeah and that's and you know the thing to kind of and this is something that i've often thought about myself is sort of like the I mean, my mom is, uh, so on my grandma's side, she's, and that's sort of a, a composite culture of like different traders that came very early in colonialism and intermarried with, uh, and kind of created like a very, oh, for real. Okay. You know, I, I, yeah. Like where my grandma's family came, like started in, and then did a lot of cross border trade. Like they, uh, they were trading weapons and whiskey to, to people across the border when that was very illegal. That's whatever, but that, that's my grandma's side. Then my grandpa's family, are and the family that the we come from the family who are uh, relatively high standing today because one of my aunties did a lot of work around revitalization of the language. But hmm. back in the day, they were sort of like the middle class. And I remember my uncles talking to me about how back, even back in the sixties. It's not, it's not something that people really talk about now, especially. And I think people are just actively kind of just as part of like a cultural evolution, putting it out. But, you know, back in the 60s, people kind of remembered like whose families were slaves. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it's sort of like, it, uh, which is okay. an interesting thing to think about. And I, I can't really speak to, yeah. I didn't grow up on a reserve, so I can't really speak to what that looks like and looks like in person. But, you know, it's certainly, 
is certainly something that gets talked about in a joking fashion. Like I remember when I, I when I started singing at at the big house with like the quick walkie walk people in Vancouver. I met they when I told them I was they're like, oh yeah, some of your relatives probably gave us foot rubs. <laughs> okay well i'm glad it can just be a joke at this point Um, yeah well exactly i mean i think that there's like especially in bc there's like a lot of really uh amazing intertribal organizing that happened in the 1960s and 70s that i think even if Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily on the forefront of people's minds constantly i think it really displays a lot of stuff like that like uh uh uh, what's his name obviously <laughs> when we get the land free you you have to figure this out among yourselves and if there's any kind of <laughs> problem uh you you deal with it right in that video i sent you with the that weird mm-hmm. crank walking around mcgill or yeah or, i don't know if it was, um, him talking about that skull island and sort of those nishka war stories was interesting because i my singing teacher was uh actually raised partly by adam dick who was like the first um or not the first he was one of the last kuakuakiwak Walk chiefs to really grow up in the in the fashion that you would if you were going to be inheriting title where you you would be basically just yeah whatever i'm taking back the word groomed but you'd be you'd be groomed by like <laughs> okay. the by the hereditary yeah. chiefs of the community to kind of understand like the depth of the responsibility and something that actually Adam Dick is an incredible person. He's been doing a lot of work around, uh, like I mentioned earlier, like things like the clam beds and the oyster beds and that he's been doing a lot of work on bringing back sort of traditional cultivation and land-based. It's, it's certainly a type of farming in the, but he's, yeah, I don't know. He's just a really amazing guy, but my, my singing teacher was taught by him and he, uh, he was telling me about this book that he was going to write about, uh, pre-contact war that happened in between the different nations around the Kokowakiwak, but his but Adam Dick was like, no, that's that'll just bring up bad feelings, and okay. so he just he didn't he didn't write the book, right? So, which is I mean, it's not the time, you know? Yeah, ex- exactly, right. It's sort of I like, can see why you, you know, yeah. who knows, who, I mean, who knows what would even happen though? Because it's like it, it's sort of one thing to kind of joke about getting foot rubs and having bad feelings come up, but I think that you know for indigenous people in Canada now, I think that, you know, those pre-colonial conflicts, what, and what have you just aren't really something that's taken seriously. I, I mean, all that is to say that there's just sort of like that, that cranks video is really, really jarring yeah. for the, for the sort of point that he was making that like, because there was war pre like pre-colonialism, then we shouldn't do things like land back or sort of like recognize that. Yeah. No. Schools have- yeah. But well, and there's no way that, of course, that that Hayden is there. Maybe we should maybe we should introduce that. No, no, no. no, no. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but he's leaving it kind of open. It could be used in that way, you know. And it doesn't have that whole kind of, you know. And I I kind of yeah. feel like if you're writing now, but but maybe he's trying to be. You know, I keep thinking like, okay, is this dry presentation some kind of disciplinary thing that you have to do? to be taken seriously in the field. <clears throat> this is how you have to present it because comparing to his other books, uh, saints, shamans, and whatever, uh, the mm-hmm. his prehistory of religion, um, that is just, you know, he, he recommends do this activity, go sit under a tree and talk oh, to the oh. tree, communicate <laughs> with it, um, bring it yes, an offering of fertilizer good. and talk to it. I'll have to read that, have to read that um, book to really put this stuff in context. Cause I think it was just really hard for me to kind of, 
He's very pro indigenous in a certain way. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but, um, and the, and, <clears throat> and, uh, so this is why I'm, I'm constantly thinking, oh, is this a disciplinary thing? You have to structure it this way. But then uh, you get to the end, the conclusion, okay, <laughs> or the, the pre conclusion, uh, the, the applications for archaeology is what he calls it. Um, mm-hmm. And then you realize maybe this actually just is not structured in a, uh, the most great way. I don't know. You know, I just, are you supposed yeah. to write uh, an archaeological paper? Is it supposed to be written more like a mystery novel? I don't know. Um, <laughs> my teacher always told me, okay, you have to say the, the whole point right at the beginning. Uh, and maybe I just missed it as well. There's this possibility. Yeah. Um, well, and then, and but the whole point. Well, so I want to I want to get this on out right. Like the whole point of the book is to he wants to say we need to interpret things from Britain and Spain and Gobekli Tepe, like Turkey and uh, uh, the Middle East, uh, these more sort of traditional sort of roots of Western civilization and stuff. All these sites that are, you know, our ancestors. Um, mm-hmm. We should interpret those through the lens of this secret society stuff that we see in the ethnography of the Pacific, mm-hmm. of Africa, of Turtle Island. Uh, that's the whole point of the book. I, I didn't catch that from the introduction, but when you get to the conclusion, he finally <laughs> fucking says it. Ai, <laughs> I didn't get that from any of it. I completely, I completely says got it. I mean, I mean, which, yeah. is like, which is, it's, that's really yeah. interesting now with, he was holding that with everything else because it, because in my mind, it's like, um, so there, there's a, nov- a novella I think I recommended to you called Mapping the Interior by a guy named Stephen Graham Jones. And it's a, mm. it's like a very short horror novella, basically about a, a kid that is sort of beset by this like vampiric spirit. That's, it's a, it's a great book just like on its own, but it's also great to read from place of knowledge about certain. So Stephen Graham Jones is a Blackfoot guy. Um, and uh, I've, I've had, had the real privilege of you know just to have a lot of like very awesome friends and family that are blackfoot so there's like there's certain things that i kind of read in the in the narrative and kind of understand from that worldview ish as much as i can as a non-blackfoot person that's just good hanging around them um so to me like that that book is always kind of read like a cosmic horror novel in the sense that there's this like there's this kid that's trying to navigate dealing with this like unspeakable evil not in the sense that it's uh not in the sense that it's unknowable or unspeakable necessarily it's just that he can because he did, wasn't able to grow up with the understanding of how to deal with those spirits right and so mm-hmm. for me reading that book and kind of comparing it to the work of lovecraft from that sort of anthropologic anthropological reading right where it's like for lovecraft the horror is sort of like in that knowledge where it's like he's learning about all these like moloch disgusting racism like is just melting his mind and you know there i think there's elements of that there the of that idea kind of coming through in this in this framing of of secret societies where it's and i think that 
that Adam Dick paper definitely gets into it a bit. Like that, I don't think they go into too much detail about aspects of it, but there's, um, I think that Brian Hayden's goal, if his goal is to sort of like have this uh, re-examination of like Western society by this framework that is sort of informed by secret societies of an indigenous thing, which is, it's, it's sort of funny to me because when I was reading that, I was like, he's just like, He's talking about Hamatsa like it's the Freemason. You know what I mean? <laughs> when it's like, yeah, well, that is kind of where he's going. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's, but I, but he I wants think to that say the Freemasons sort of come like, from, well, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He's, he does suggest that the priesthoods of Egypt, who were able, you know, they're, they really get to be pros at creating these cramped underground spaces, for example, digging tunnels mm-hmm. that are, kilometer long or something hundreds of meters long uh, and he wants to connect that to uh state formation he suggests that maybe the the big state religions when you get right the official religions of a, of a state may have saved the secret societies and the ruling classes of these st- states may have kept them going mm-hmm. esoterically yeah. on the inside of the ruling class yeah. while they tell the you know the story totally. of and the official religion. Oh, hell yeah. See, and that's, yeah. that for me, like that's definitely a coherent and that's like a, that's a fascinating thing to think about. But I think where, and I, I think I kind of got into it a bit in the email, but it's just, for me, it's really hard to kind of, to take that same leap with these things, just as a, you know, as someone that participates in it to a degree or to the degree that I'm allowed, right. It's sort of, um, it's because, uh, you know, like it, it's it's one thing to kind of cast your cast the gaze back onto to Egypt, which was interacting with Rome, which obviously became sort of the. The foundation for what what you could say is like, you know, Western society or what have you. But I think that the, the thing that kind of sticks at that kind of is like the thorn in my side that kind of keeps me from. I guess I guess you could say it keeps me grounded ish is that, you know it's uh, that that future was foreclosed upon for for a potlatch society by colonialism and i think it's really it's hard to kind of consider because you know it's certainly you know like i said that these were class societies and there is of course there is class conflict and these things but it's it's difficult to kind of make that make a leap from acknowledging that but also kind of leaving it in the past when it existed and kind of dealing with the ramifications of colonialism in community now and in my, in my own life, right? Like my, my great grandmother could speak, but she, she didn't, you know what I mean? Just because of the way she was treated in her life. And so it's, um, and, and that's not like a unique story. And I'm like, that's not to say that these aren't questions to be asked. I think it's just difficult for me personally to kind of, to kind of look at, Hamatsa societies or mm-hmm. or these secret societies just kind of even before kind of you know going through my my own understanding of them as like all of these secret societies were coll- like collaborating with each other towards lifting up the house or the the clan so it, it, uh-huh. it's more just like a very like Dude, these were like well, very if it's clan, like then that's coffee. not secret society. That's actually quite different, right? Like, <laughs> um, so the clan, uh, like like rituals that are centered around uh, ancestors, you know, of a clan group, of a kinship mm-hmm. group, 
would be uh, Hayden is is uh, analyzing those as mutually exclusive with secret societies. A secret society is going to be like super clan and it's going to be regional and it's going to be directing, you know, the the leaders of secret societies tend to be. uh, He says that it's unclear where actually materially they're getting the resources that they're putting into the secret (laughs) society, Uh, but probably their own clan. Probably they're exploiting their own clan to then put things into the secret society uh, at a certain There's, stage, right? I, I could talk to my teachers and find out about that because the way, so at the potlatch, I think that's from that smoke from his fire documentary that I sent you, they had that. Um, uh-huh. So there's the potlatch, the patsa, and then uh-huh. inside the potlatch, there's sort of like the three, three ceremonies that would happen, which would be like the closed one, which is uh-huh. the seka, which is where, you know, the clans would gather and as part of, so, so in Kwakwakiwak, this is, and this is also my understanding, and this is like something I'm still being trained and groomed to, to manage, but so you have your clan and inside yeah. your clan, you have your, your house, you're like the head of your clan. So it's a, your chief, which is, uh-huh. you know, kind of a dubious term maybe, but, but then inside the clan, members of your clan belong to different dance societies and have rights to different <clears throat> to different yeah. songs and dances and this sort of thing, which ra- raises your your standing or raises your name because what you perpetuate, and this is this, this is roughly parallel to a lot of coastal things. Like I know for for solo people, like you can you inherit a name and you you like you can either have the name made for you, which is obviously like a very big milestone in your life, but the highest mm-hmm. honor that you can ever get as a solo person is to inherit an ancestral name. So, um, um, what's his, a guy named Herb Joe right now is Halls and Halls is the, you can kind of think of him as the creator. Like he's the person that came and started changing things on the planet so that people could live. And as, Mm -hmm. as the inheritor of the name Halls, he, he embodies Halls in the material sense and like spiritually, in his position in his community like that's sort of uh, his role in the community is one of high standing and like high respect where he needs to provide to the community and continue the legacy of halls because like, yeah. to us like halls, halls was a real person and sort of the way that he, he was he was and is a real person you know what i mean and that he's mm-hmm. that that life kind of continues through the inheriting of the name um and for those clans the way that like basically the potlatch and everything is sort of in service of their name and to kind of maintain their future generations by sort of like keeping your name in good standing would be the, the way to kind of, because I mean, it all, it all just comes down to the name, right? It's like, you want to make sure that the, that your family is going to be well taken care of in the future. And the way that that happens is by having that, that name in good standing and that, that name that people recognize and respect and will be like attending the potlatches for to, because the potlatch isn't simply a place where people kind of come in and perform these dances and the secret societies come out and do their dances. It's also how people perpetuated their, their history prior to, to writing. Right. Because you'd have like the, the one thing I was taught is like the biggest insult that you could ever do to somebody the way, if you ever wanted to like cut, a person down super super low would be to be invited to a potlatch and not go that is just like 
that's just like the the deepest hurt that you could put on somebody because by attending that potlatch you you're given gifts as an attendant as just right, like someone right. that's there you're, you're given part of that wealth and that that's sort of like so that's the gift that the the host is giving you and the gift that you give them in return <clears throat> is the perpetuation of that history to say like, yeah well yeah, and hayden is just yeah. describing that as a debt of gratitude which which can be mm-hmm. kind of like a spark that starts an engine of of uh class difference eventually yeah yeah it, it, it's it's certainly interesting to think about but i think that there's also you know and, and this just kind of comes back to my little bugbear about academic archaeology and just sort of like flying archaeologists is that they there's certainly like a, a very hard framing put on what debt means you know what i mean where it's like a and there's a, yeah. there's a capitalistic understanding of what that debt means to to members of that society where, and you know, this could be romanticized. Like this could, uh, no, I'm not going to say it's romanticizing. I'm just, <laughs> cause it's like, yeah, you don't uh, No. Yeah. It's, 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 it's sort of, um, cause you know, for, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to think about what I can speak to with authority and what I would have standing to speak to that wouldn't, uh potentially get my family in trouble (laughs) (laughs) well maybe while you think about that i I can raise the issue then too of of uh, materialism right Mm -hmm. um historical materialism which which hayden is extremely on that tip right his introductory quote to that uh para like like penultimate chapter right about like let's now look at europe and the middle east is uh, the reaction what is it called archaeological applications or the conclusion yes yes the the second to last the second to last chapter um archaeological applications that's it i skipped archaeological applications i feel like i'm back Ah, yeah see which you would you know so i'm wondering (laughs) is this conventional somehow in this but (laughs) i don't know in any case like (laughs) actually no i can see how that works yeah the the quote opening that right what do you call that you know the the reaction to evolution the epigraph says reaction to evolutionism and scientific functionalism has very nearly amounted to a denial that regularities exist yeah and so there you have a a con a big like a cool like wrestling match set up right there between Mm. hayden and the davids right uh graber and wengro on of everything who ultimately you know if you listen to like their in the interview on uh the canadian they're canadian uh totally wrong probably wrong seriously wrong oh oh shit uh yeah Frig. I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah uh so they he gave an interview on there too and and that's where he gets his most anarchist right and oh, yeah. they and they really come out and like and start talking about, oh, isn't it stupid that, you know, isn't historical materialism stupid? Because if you believe that, then, and this is in the book, there is, I, I got to it, you know, you might believe that, oh, people start eating fish and that makes them become a class society. It makes them become aggressive and, uh, right? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, at, at some point, I think that I have to part ways with uh, the Davids event at some point. Uh, mm. Right. And then Hayden, on the other hand, but uh, but I fuck with the way that the Davids are leaving space for agency of indigenous people and ancient people and people who are at 
you know, what, whatever, you know, I, I don't want to say like lower stages or whatever, like this, this, we, we should well, get yeah, away from this. But, well, lower, yeah, well, lower le- intensity like, of class struggle. That's what I'll say. I think, well, I think it would said. just be a different, it would just be like a different type of class struggle. Cause that's the one thing yeah. that I've tried to kind of conceive of, right. Or something that I've tried to think deeply about, you know, because for all the, for all the knowledge that survived colonialism, you have to imagine that like, there were subclasses, there was lower classes that would have died because their material conditions were such that they couldn't survive colonialism, even like they would have perished quicker than everybody else, right? So you have things like, what does substance use like pre-contact? Substance mm-hmm. use look like in community pre-contact? Because, you know, there's, yeah. certain, there's evidence of like different communities brewing alcohol before settlers showed up. And of course, like the trauma of yeah. colonialism is formed what it looks like today you know it wasn't there's nothing inherent about the alcohol use or substance use among indigenous people but you know it, yeah it especially the spirits. Of my mind where it's just like what is yeah like yeah. what is what is what is addiction and like alcoholism yeah. look like pre-contact because that's you know yeah so much of and there may be so much thing but yeah oh yeah certainly and that's but, and that's the thing yeah, is sort of like what is what does class conflict look like before capitalism or like in like a in a potlatch society is something yeah. that's definitely cur- something i'm curious about but it's kind of it's it's difficult to find people to have that conversation with because i don't want to show up at my language class with people that are very like and rightfully like rightfully invested in reviving these and like maintain not even reviving but maintaining them and like bringing them to yeah the you're not yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't it's not time to, like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's time <laughs> to just try to survive, actually. Survival is the number one imperative as a nation. Yeah, but it, but it, but it is still, it is still an important question to keep in the, the back. Because, you know, like, like you've mentioned many yeah. times on the podcast is that, that there was Iroquois Confederacy occurred after a period of despotism, right? So there's, and it's, and it's sort of hard to know, like, was, what what stage of history Kwakwakwak people found themselves in because yeah it's you know it's it's an interesting thing to think about too because you know prior to the west coast like the west coast of Canada like the Pacific Northwest has the Rocky Mountains between them and the prairies so whereas Blackfoot Cree like the the number treaties before BC had something like four or five hundred years of like physical material like running battles to contend with like Coast Salish people and what like people over here, like on the West Coast, have maybe about a hundred or a hundred and fifty, which is just it's just a really wild thing to think about, especially when you kind of hold that that Nicestus quote in your head, right? It's like this is a post-apocalyptic society, so it's yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very it is an apocalypse, trip. and yet I wouldn't, you know, you I don't you said earlier the the possibility of becoming like ancient Egypt was foreclosed uh, for your mm-hmm. nation. And and I would there I would want to actually bring the Davids in and and say well but we could do a dawn of everything take on that and sort of say you know what if they were your ancestors actually really didn't want to become like ancient Egypt you know I think that's actually totally fine totally and and that's what I was that's what I was getting at with that too right it's just like it's 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 definitely interesting and a good a valid point on the part of Hayden to make about you know this is a like secret societies certainly informed the formation of whatever demonic thing you want to call you want to call us <laughs> in the society but our current but run of uh 
Yeah. <laughs> Our current, <laughs> what was I saying? Uh, you know, we have this cycle, our current cycle of class struggle, which, which is maybe 6,000 mm. years old. There is something fucking yeah. happened in the last 6,000 years, uh, which even the Davids yeah. admit, you know, they sort of say, yeah. uh, they have a chapter titled at a certain point, uh, how did we get stuck? So they think we're mm-hmm. stuck. Yeah. That's how they say it. Definitely. Yeah. And, and what I think what I was getting at is that it's sort of like there's, when it comes to kind of looking at that, that uh, subterranean aspect of a, a, ancient Egypt and like the, those societies and stuff, there's, you know, there's like a, there's a straight line kind of historically where you can kind of demonstrate that, but, you know, for secret societies and in Africa and in the Americas, it's sort of like, that's, it's a bit of a, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a spurious claim, but it's a bit, it's one that's a little bit hard to kind of engage with as an indigenous person, because you're just like, I, I don't know, it really just comes down to me not wanting to admit that my hamas are <laughs> Well, these are great, these are great things, you know, um, <laughs> and, and these are practices that I myself, I realize participate in nearly all of these things, you know, just from living in the mountains in Japan, going on a lot of walks by myself, uh, I would go on hikes for like a week uh, in the mountains, and um, I didn't like... You know, doing things like sitting under waterfalls or sitting in caves, mm. you know, I do, I do these things. And so, yeah, I mean, I get it. And I also do no dancing and I'm realizing reading this thing, I was like, oh, this is no, this is exactly what this is. Japanologists never really get it. You know, we, we, uh, there's some writing on no in the middle ages as being, you know, warrior lords would do no dances together when they would. Uh, get together to talk business you know Mm -hmm. before a feast or whatever and that's it's not normally connected into you could plug that right into this big uh, pattern right totally and often they would display the heads of they would also display the heads of enemies they had just defeated that was something Nobunaga (laughs) did at one point Uh, he covered them all in gold (laughs) <laughs> he, oh, that's cool he displayed <laughs> the gold covered heads of all his enemies that he had just slain. oh actually that that reminds me yeah. uh i wanted to talk about one of the things in hayden i i think i sent you the quote but so yeah so one you thing spotted some hayden things talked, where like the the photo was wrong <laughs> and, i was like yeah <laughs> so no, he's he's got so some this, holes so this, is just me, this, is, this is just me being a little bit I'm not being goofy, but that these are just sort of funny things that I noticed. So, um, mm. when 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 Hayden talks about stage magic being part of the society dances, and he's he's being a bit vague when he talks about, and this this is strictly in the Northwest context because I don't really mm. know uh, for the because I just don't have enough time. I didn't read the entire book. I just sort of read the mm-hmm. everything inside the Northwest and then sort of the conclusions and stuff. But uh, so when he talks about like the stage magic being an aspect of those society dances, which I'm not sure if he's speaking to Hamatsa specifically, or just as part of like the, because the, well, the winter dances were the ones that were open to the public that you were able to come and attend. He, he talks about the stage magic and I, and just sort of like the, the terror that would inflict on people. But I remember an elder that I was talking about this sort of he was kind of describing some of these things to me where he was you know talking about what Hayden does about fire dancers walking on coals and like they would uh he said that they would take tree sap and I can't remember the tree off the top of my head but he said that they would take the tree sap and like 
coat the inside of their mouth like Homer Simpson in that episode where he like eats the peppers. They would like coat their mouth with the sap and spit it out so they could put hot coals in their mouth. Oh, wow. Do, okay. Uh, yeah. Then they would have like attendants come out with a big blanket. So when the, at, during this one particular song, someone would fall out of the roof because he like went to heaven and he returned from heaven and he fell on the, and they catch him when he falls down. But all that yeah. is to say, he told me this really funny story about this. They call, uh, maybe I won't use the nation's name because I feel like this could get him in trouble. They called the, this mm-hmm. one nation they had a word for, which basically meant sort of like easy to impress. Okay. Like very like easily, like easily impressed people. Um, and he's saying that, you know, one of the society dances that I think Hayden talks about was they did this, uh, they did this mock dismemberment of the initiate as part of, because when you go to become a Hamatsa dancer, you go to isolate yourself until you go to this person called Bakbakwala Nuxiwe, who's the wild woman of the woods. And the, the whole point of your isolation and your fasting and your preparation is you go into the woods until you find her cabin, but you, you don't go in it. You just look at it and that's when you know you've kind of done it and you walk away. And then <clears throat> by that point, when you see her cabin, you're, uh, it's such a nutty thing to try to imagine, but the hunger becomes such that like every like pore in your body becomes a mouth. Like uh-huh. that goose flesh or whatever, like those become mouths and they're like gnashing, trying to eat something. And then these three birds, these three mythical birds come down and they like, they pick out your eyes to symbolize you like entering a new stage in your life and joining this, because completing your initiation, they pick out your spine because you're going to be like, you're going to come back, which is actually interesting to have that kind of that nervous system aspect, right? Because they take, uh-huh. they take your spine because you're going to be coming back to the world in a new way and feeling uh-huh. it differently but i mean all that is to say part of the dance is that they do like a they do like stage magic and dismember the initiate um and i remember right. but then they like obviously they come back and i remember this elder being like yeah like back in the day it must have been like 1700s or something like that i remember my great grandma telling me about this these people they like they went to her they attended a potlatch and they were so impressed by the power of that and they you know they went through and they they earned this. They got the right to do this dance. And here are these fucking people. They killed their initiate. They just oh, no. They actually came For me, it's just like, like, she's like, those fucking people. They were so impressed by him coming back to life that they didn't even realize that it's like, <laughs> like she said it. It's like, people know uh, it's like stage. Magic. It's like a metaphor. We're like telling a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a question <laughs> as well. Like, how seriously should it be? Was it really taken? That is, that's a living thing. Um, however, sometimes, of course, there are definitely uh, accounts of <clears throat> people being killed for revealing secrets. And, oh, yeah. And so oh, on. yeah, definitely. There's but, um, one of the societies there. The whole point of the society was to like enforce the, from what I've been told, which could be, you know, could be softening the blow for like a tender little kid or whatever. I was, I had, I've been told that it wasn't like a, the people weren't killed for slight transgressions like coughing or like chuckling. But if someone was like blatantly mm. disrespecting, uh, if they were like being very disrespectful to the, to the host and they would be like just murked on yeah. the spot. And then the family would have to, you know, the family would have to potlatch and like pay the host for the embarrassment mm. and for holding it up. Right. Which is like, mm. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you have some class struggle Um, and you you have all kinds of 
Well, and and the line, let's let's um so for Hayden, the line that he would be drawing, I think, and that that was in the conclusions that I just finally got through last night, is do you have these not do you have these spiritual practices, but it's do they are they attached to expensive initiation fees and exotic mm-hmm. ritual paraphernalia? Yeah. The- I mean, the yeah. exotic ritual paraphernalia thing is something I can kind of... And that's a useful materialist know. angle, I think, um, yeah, which can see sometimes the, the I think, uh, with the Davids, I would side with the Davids and want to really see reality and meaning in a lot of these uh, stories about this is benefiting the community in these spiritual ways. You know, I want to mm-hmm. let that be real. But then on the other hand, if you totally just believe that, then you're doing the same thing that you would be doing if you looked at modern American society and you say, oh, you know, Obama says that he uh, Biden says he yeah. can't keep any of his campaign promises. So it's got to be, you know, I uh, you're, you're yeah. coming at it from a default presumption <clears throat> that systems do what they say that they're doing exactly. all the time. Yeah, yeah which can't and, do and I think that, you know. You know, and this is where I want to be cautious because on the one hand, you know, I want to, like I said, I, I don't want to portend as a, like, just pretend as though these were like utopian societies, right? I don't, that's not a belief I hold. I think that that's like. Yeah, it would be helpful harmful. for indigenous yeah, people. Just, I think that totally, I think that's just as harmful as like doing the Alex Jones thing. It's sick, folks. Like looking at a mask and being like, this is sick. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, or like, you know, you know, I mean, we do get, maybe I should bring up, like we do get some vampire hunters, <laughs> maybe peripheral people, but, you know, whatever, in, in some of these uh, discords, you do get <laughs> open open suggestions that like, I mean, there, first of all, there's, there's a definite Abrahamic um, centrism to some people very... And then also people who don't come from those traditions are more demon infested, basically, or like still, <laughs> still got yeah. the demons on them. From, yeah. And I mean, yeah. and that's the thing where it's like my, my knowledge is incomplete, you know, about, um, about how this governance worked in practice. But yeah. the, the thing about a potlatch system of governance is that as much as you need to, you know, as much as these are sort of displays of wealth, it's, it is, these these displays of wealth I think are sort of portrayed as such because they were being interpreted by people from a capitalistic society you know what I mean so like the and certainly like the historical materialism plays in because you know different houses were in had different territory that had different access to resources like my friend a friend of mine's grandpa is still the it's fucking incredible to think about but his his grandpa is like the hereditary chief that gives people permission to harvest ulican, which no. is a. Uh, are you familiar with ulican, or have no. you heard about candlefish? Are you? Oh, one sec. I'll be right back. I got something cool to show you. All right. Yeah. Right back. All right. Why don't I put more hot water in my tea? Nao no iana kupuna, ia kaula no ka aina, he ono ika ai maka ika lomi lomi, he ono no ika nahu nahu pum, mai kalia pauna ni hom, o halai ka puulena, o kavake ia o ka ono loa, ai ike ika kuhi kuhi ni So something that, you know, Hayden mentions it here and there, but he really doesn't, uh, 
And this is something that I think is so fucking crucial to potlatches and stuff. But so, like, in terms of material wealth, this stuff is the fucking. Oh. I feel chiefly holding this. But so, this is, yeah. this is you looking grease. Um, okay. Basically, it's just an incredibly, incredibly high nutritional value fish oil. So, oh, nice. in, uh, in BC, there's a, they're like real tiny fish and they still do it this way that where they like divert a river basically to catch as many fish as they can take them out and ferment them for a period of time. And then they render them to get this Yulikin oil and it's just fucking delicious. Nice. <laughs> you know, people, people still talk about like, I don't know. It, it really is sort of like the core to so many different nations, you know, ancestral wealth and, uh, ancestral wealth and just health you know it's there's just so many mm-hmm. elders that say like this is this keeps me alive um mm-hmm. but uh i mean yeah so so hayden just kind of makes an offhand mention of the like throwing fish oil into fires and stuff which is a thing that happens as part of the giveaway where every single person in attendance would be given a vessel uh-huh. like this of of yeah. oil which is like the highest like the, like it, it's really hard to convey like how valuable this stuff is even today like but it's like but it's also something that people won't sell you know what i mean like if okay because it's yeah it's a kind but, of sacred um, substance yeah yeah well it, that's really cool uh, you know that still has a whole lot of um like materially non-class struggle kind of element to it yeah but i mean it's uh there is still like a class element non-commodified yeah that's it there's my friend uh I was I was picking pine mushrooms full time for a couple of years during COVID, and I remember a friend of mine went to the Nass Valley, where which is like just basically like twenty miles past the border anywhere in Canada becomes the bush. But hmm. he was like pretty pretty out out there, pretty deep, and he there's like this in Canada. It's uh it's illegal to sell or barter any mm-hmm. any game or fish that indigenous people catch as part of their treaty rights because it's not considered like a traditional sub sustenance or something um, oh i see but, but you know people still hustle seafood and shit but this this guy was asking my friend like what like what do you want like what do you what can i get you and he's like oh i would fucking die for you looking grease and the guy was uh-huh. <laughs> i guess the guy was like i'm never gonna fucking sell you that and then he pissed on his car <laughs> later <or something>. oh <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> it's like a very uh, funny definitely one. not something to even ask huh oh <laughs> but uh yeah i mean it's, i love it's, my uh, fish oil too i eat i eat a lot of salmon yeah. right and oh so actually that really connects to another topic here that, that like in a way this whole thing the the national question the colonial question you know you in here in japan um you know this is a country with a real ass bourgeoisie they had secret societies. They had plans to colonize America. Mm. I was just reading, actually, uh, what um, Sato Nobuyuki, and um, it's not coming to me at the moment, but um, a couple of like early 19th century Rangakshas of Dutch studies scholars. So they were reading Dutch books and, and Dutch news and everything. Uh, and they learned about settler colonialism. And they said, we got to do that. They That's said, it. we're going to figure out <laughs> even then, you know, they, they, uh, some people, right. Uh, and one of the, the two that I'm, 
I just recently read was was advocating, you know, they both were talking about we got to figure out fisheries, we got to figure out uh, mining, we got to figure out and and get it industrialized, get it going fast, get these mm-hmm. resources moving out of there. And then we got to get and colonize Hokkaido. And then we colonize Sakhalin. And then we go colonize America. And this was back before like, when did the Canadian and, and American settler states reach the West Coast in, in a big way, you know? Yeah, this is, kinda, this, is, this is kind of fucked because it's part of my, my, um, so my grandpa's mom is, but my grandpa's dad is this, uh, he's, we, I just, I didn't get to meet him growing up. He was, uh, he was like in and out of residential schools and orphanages growing up. So he didn't really, oh, yeah, no. I don't know, but it's actually he actually passed away log rolling in Kwakwakiwak territory. There's a lot of synchronicities with this oh, guy. Well, fair fucks to him. Oh yeah, all that is to say his so My Simon God. Fraser came to the north of British Columbia and my ancestor uh-huh. who was with Simon Fraser and he just sort of like decided to settle down there and that's so my grand my great grandpa's but oh, my, so Simon Fraser <laughs> this is an early yeah. colonist. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. He was the he was the first colonist to make it to BC. He went to he okay. started up north and then went down. But yeah. um so if um I, I is it Sato no Sato Nobuyuki was advocating um going west, basically, uh and colonizing China, which is what ended up oh, happening. Okay. Uh was but your other man to, to the east, I guess. Like was there yeah um much like japanese like i know russia and the Tlingit people had like a lot of very nutty very nutty battles oh wow that's so fascinating so So in the early 19th century a hundred years before boaz wow you do actually get simon fraser made it so the first simon fraser the first person to start establishing trading ties with people on the west coast of canada but that's also like northern bc maybe like not that far in from alberta but that was in 1811 okay okay yeah yeah uh okay so it's, it's um honda toshiaki honda toshiaki and sato nobuhiro sato nobuhiro maybe i said nobuyuki but that's wrong yeah honda toshiaki writes in 1798 1798 how may japan become the greatest nation in the world she should profit by the arts of civilization which she has learned during the 1500 years that have elapsed since the time of the emperor jinmu um that's a thousand years uh less than the the imperial government of the 20th century gives them by the way uh, that's shorter she should move her main capital to the country of kamchatka so the kamchatka peninsula it is located at 51 degrees north latitude, same as London. So the climates must be similar. He oh, has shit. this idea of climates being, you know, you can become superior oh, by living in the right climate. <laughs> she should build a great stronghold on Karafto or Sakhalin. Once great cities spring up in Karafto and Kamchatska, the momentum will carry on to the islands to the south and the growing prosperity of each of these places will raise the prestige of Edo to great heights. This in turn will naturally result in the acquisition of the American islands. <laughs> so is that is he, is he referring specifically to like hawaii alaska stuff or is he meaning like turtle island like a turtle island i think he means all fucking <laughs> turtle island. he would have come that's for so, you that's such a wild sneak disc yeah honda <laughs> honda toshiaki in 1798 was already saying this 
Um, and and he could, you know, they could have done it because like who, you know, the the British uh, settlers weren't there yet. Yeah. Oh fuck. So you know, this is a question. Like uh, back when I was like more of a weeb and and didn't <laughs> learn the real kind of relationship too between America and Japan, understand the full like post war situation. I had can I got all the papers together for naturalization, so that that always is an option. You know, there's some people that that do it. Very few people from settler colonies, very few white settlers will do that. But there was mm. a period when I was considering. You know, I and and it was sort of close to together with my political awakening as well, and thinking about the colonial question and and thinking about so you know America is very much. There's there's eight military bases in the Tokyo area alone of America mm. where the as as Trump did, you know, you the, the U.S. military can land people and get them into Japan without any kind of procedure from the Japanese government. Yeah. 1947 or so was when the Japanese the left in Japan all talks about Article nine and protecting, you know, the the peace clause of the constitution, but the entire constitution was already overturned by the Supreme court in 1947 or so when the existence of the defense forces came, uh, became an issue. And they basically said, well, uh, actually the status of forces agreement with the U S army is a higher law than the Japanese constitution. The status forces agreement want the American army wants us to have this army of our own. So therefore, mm-hmm. we'll have it. So in a situation <laughs> like that, you know, I've, I'm sort of not, a, I, I'm, I'm kind of happy to say that I'm not a settler in the sense that I don't live on stolen land. Um, <laughs> but I live on land that is kind of still occupied, you know, it's like. No, yeah, no, for real. I mean, that's, that's interesting. It's sort of like a, oh, fuck, what would you call that? Expat isn't the right word, but. No, then that's yeah, yeah. I mean, then that that's that's interesting to think about too, because it gets at something that I think yeah. that there's there's a period in history of uh, in the history of like indigenous political organizing at an international scale around the 1970s, where there was this very like there's just so much incredible stuff happening, like the the Diné people in um, in northern BC and the Yukon had like a Maoist constitution that they were oh, wow. armed prepared to defend but it, it wound up being diffused but um mm. but the Denny declaration was happening in Canada George Manuel there's like a very there's a really great book I'd recommend checking out called the fourth world by George Manuel where mm. um he he was working for the federal government at the time and the this guy named Jean Chrétien who is the the minister of Indian affairs got sick and couldn't go on this global delegation to meet indigenous people around the world. So George Manuel, who is a Chopemic indigenous fellow, just wound up going around the world and meeting all these different nations and just started doing a lot of like international solidarity work from Canada. But I guess the split would have been more in the eighties, but there is this very like exciting moment where it could have gone like very direct kind of non-aligned movement ish, you know, like the Indonesian way, but then, it broke off and so much of that effort wound up getting funneled into the UN and mm. sort of these very like, it's yeah. like, I mean, say what you will about international law, but you know, it's Carl Schmidt is the guy, right. And the sub and sort of the fact that the UN has ultimate say about what 
definition sovereignty is and it has been changed so many so frequently it's just just sort of like that that divergence from sort of more like grassroots protracted mm-hmm. people's war shit in the in the 1980s to becoming this very like you know bourgeois bureaucratic conception of like yes we're going to like legislate our way to fucking nationhood or something uh representation right like in uh red 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 skin skin, white white masks oh yeah 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 one of the one of the founding unions for the iww is actually a bunch of squamish nation people that were it was called the bows and arrows but they it was a longshore union that formed in vancouver between squamish and hawaiian longshore workers and they they had like a i think they burned down a pier fighting the rcmp one day there was this like bomb throwing happening on the pier and shit and they oh, wow. there was this like a delegation of like squamish guys that went to the first convention in chicago to form it and now the fucking this is definitely not going in the episode but the but, uh, those stories reminded me of a couple a couple things where hmm. there's a uh, i used to play in a lot of like hardcore and punk bands in vancouver and there's one guy that was uh it, as you find sometimes he was just like covered head to toe with tattoos like had very weird like magic with the k symbols all over his face and shit and then uh-huh. he got really into drag he got really into drag racing um hmm. and decided to go to japan to just buy cars or something i, I don't know what he was doing there but oh there is that he, idea of like yeah tokyo drift <laughs> yeah, or whatever. yeah yeah tokyo drift <laughs> <laughs> the furious guy yeah but he was yeah i don't think he could speak japanese but he just like as soon as he got the money he borrowed like barreled over there and I understand the drug laws are very strict, but he was with a group of guys oh, yeah. smoking weed and he, uh, he got the shit kicked out of him by the police and he was arrested. So he's, Oh I no. He spent, yeah. I think he spent like a year in prison in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. You'll <laughs> go to prison like, and you'll get barred yeah, from the country. This, this fucking yeah. hapless middle class little wiener. Just kind of like, oh, that's, that's sad. It's well, a fucking, oh, yeah. Well. It was a, yeah. There's, yeah, his, there's a million. It's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, those guys used to be a, people like that used to be a dime a dozen. Now with COVID times, it's kind of wild <laughs> because, you know, nobody who's on, isn't on a long-term visa would even be here. Yeah. That's so you can't wild. get it. The border's closed. So Jesus. it's just starting to open and then, up now. And then I, I actually remember too. Yeah. Um, it's not a story. There's a guy who is one of the last people to really undergo the the very serious kind of Hamatsa initiation of like the isolation on a on an island for quite a while until they until they stumbled upon this house. But um, uh huh. So, so it has that changed. Movement. That's that's interesting to know. Like yeah, right, because that's actually, another reason you, you can imagine that Hayden would be relying on these ethnographic accounts exclusively. You could be like, oh, yeah. you know, they they still have it, but like it's really inevitably it's going to be changed, and we want to just get the pure like whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like the yeah, there there are still people that do certain things. It's a, I think the very old ways are a bit more common, and, but it's also because mm-hmm. the my family are dancers they have, i think i have some family that do the winter dancer dancing but uh dancing is uh it's sort of the the only very strong carving tradition in territory but because no. it's never been something that's for the public it was never like there just aren't that many photos of masks kind of floating around but why, why did i talk about that <laughs> mm. 
but uh, I kind of raised the possibility that things have oh, changed yeah. over oh, that's time, right? right? right. Yeah. Um, so that's although it's not that's, worthless that's, to ask people today, you know. I mean, it's great. Okay, that reminds me of the track. So yeah. The, yeah. Like, like initiations are still very much done in the old in the old way in that. But um, for Kwakwakiwak people, I think that the, for the most part, a lot of Hamatsa initiations that happen now, or like the society dances now, are uh, like they still exist and they're still like a spiritual practice. But it's less. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just less intense in the same way that like life in general is less intense under capitalism mm-hmm. like in a in a certain mm-hmm. sense i guess with, that's this colorful would have been in like the mid uh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> this would have been like the mid 19th century i like i talked earlier about how when you when you do your hamatsa initiation you're not supposed to like you only look at buck buck walanuxiway's cabin you don't go mm-hmm. inside because that's uh like even just casting your eyes on it is enough to kind of give you those mouths right so what happens is uh, you'll be found at whatever point in the year after your Hamatsa initiation. And, uh, you know, ideally from what, from the point that you're found up until the winter time when the potlatches happen, that's about the time that it'll take for the, for the doctors to kind of work on you and bring you back, like bring your human spirit back and kind of work out. Cause that's the whole point, right? It's like you, by kind of isolating yourself in that way until you see Bak Bakwal and Nuxiwe's house and kind of let her spirit in. The whole idea of in it being initiated is that you're you're sort of exerting your own power over that to sort of say like no like I'm going to cast out this like this evil spirit and I'm bringing my own back in through the help of my my family and these doctors and that but uh, sort of like the core value of like Okwakiwak culture is balance and sort of like having like that equilibrium between everything in your in your from yourself to your community to the natural world and like I mean that's the thing when you kind of talk about like indigenous spirituality and just spirituality in general, I think is just so much like, I think like being, being raised in Canada, there's like a certain, I just feel kind of corny talking about it sometimes, but I'm trying to like let that go. But yeah, just like that balance is really the core principle there. But um, is in the Hamatsa cycle, there's your Hamatsa song, which is talking about basically it's like a a song that's composed by someone that's sent out to the bush to just watch you go through this process. Okay. So they kind of they compose a Hamatsa song for you about your relationship. To, yeah, exactly. So then yeah. that's the first part of your Hamatsa cycle is your song. And then the last one is your taming song. So that's like a complete like a right. complete Hamatsa initiation. So an initiation like this, right, where you take upon yourself a spirit of cannibalism and then you tame it, you you make it safe, you know, sort of for everyone else. There are these dangerous forces out in the universe that only the members of the society can control. Uh, for Hayden, you know, that would be part of the, the mechanism there. Maybe we should explain is like, um, you know, the, the kind of cold materialist eye would look at yeah. this kind of a story and say, OK, this exists to sort of terrorize the community. You do get cases where I think in California there were it was a very gendered thing where the men uh would just get together and sort of pretend to be fighting uh all of these <laughs> nasty powers that are coming from the mountains and the women they told the women to hide inside uh while this is happening and they'd make all kinds of noises and do enact the kind of fight right um and the the question arises again you know of like how what is the extent to which this is just a a 
spiritual. It has spiritual meaning for people. People know it's not, it's on this kind of like metaphysical register for people. And they don't literally believe uh, this necessarily either. There's all that Mm. question, but, but that would be a way in which, so I have to repent. I have to um, self crit uh, Mm -hmm. here because I had this thing of like saying that antinomianism probably doesn't really arise until the early modern capitalist bourgeoisie. Maybe that's a hypothesis that I had expressed uh, and that before that, maybe all religion is is much more positive. But mm. I think reading this book, I, I have to say there's maybe something to the kind of vulgar ethnography of the 19th century that was being reflected in like Paul Carus's book on the history of the devil. Right. He had a history of the devil that I Paul Carus being the German American religion of <clears throat> science guy. And eugenicist mm-hmm. who was the main teacher actually of DT Suzuki, the inventor oh, of like modern Zen, right? And Paul Carus has this book about the history of the idea of the devil, is something is like the title. And he mm-hmm. posits that human history goes from originally people engage in demonolatry. And then as advanced societies arise and you know. <laughs> Uh, superior races um, like the Teutonic races. That's what he's aim. That's what he situates at the top, right? Because it's an, it, that way you get to include Germans together with the Anglo-Saxons. That's his whole thing, right? Right. And that was a big part of what DT Suzuki liked about him was that he could then include Japanese within. Uh, the, oh, that's okay. what he learned. He learned how to like do well, opportunity uh, supremacy kind of situation. How to how to win your way into white supremacy. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, well, but so, you know, I initially was like, well, no, no, I mean, people will be innocent of that. And I think that's still right. Because what we have here is not demonolatry, but actually demon quelling through, you know, driving out these demons at first. But definitely, there is something to this idea that actually first, I think first you get a, a non-dual, it's probably, you know, people are dealing with natural forces, people are struggling for survival in a hostile environment our first Mm. ancestors three million years ago that's a big line you can that's about as far back as you can possibly go um that's in saints shamans and whatever by hayden the history prehistory of religion um it seems like religion really helped us to survive in the plains of africa uh after some climate changes happened and the the actual tree space became scarce and so much bigger primate species would have driven us out of the trees. And so we would have been mm. on the savanna and we would have had to survive there and develop not only technology, but also very strong social structures and conventions of hospitality and conventions of yeah mutual aid. Right. Mm-hmm. And these would have been religion would have really helped to solidify these bonds. Right. So yeah totally and it's and you definitely see that reflected in like these in these indigenous societies and that's the thing there it's like potlatches are kind yeah. of tricky to talk about because it's definitely a, a governance system as much as it is a religious practice and you know it's yeah. actually kind of uh, you know for like pasa which is like the like the kwakwakiwak version of mm-hmm. a potlatch or whatever it's like you know there's those three those three categories that the potlatch falls under where the, the one side is very much like a, 
you know, I think that I think that kind of falls up like aligns closest to to Hayden's kind of conception of a secret society because it's like a closed thing where these different potlatch hosts kind of come together to to compare their ledgers and mm-hmm. to see like you know this is the this was the giving that happened throughout these throughout this course so let's balance this ledger like you're going to host a mm-hmm. potlatch I'll host a potlatch all this stuff happens and yeah. I could also be dead wrong because I haven't talked about this for a minute with my teachers but um so there's that but then there's also sort of the the semi-public religious event and then there's the fully public event that's more about sort of like that like we talked about earlier like that governance side where it's like the oral history is being perpetuated through these these gatherings Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. well you can kind of see their surplus getting right we we have surplus and then after a while after surplus arises then you you have certain uh you know this is what hayden would be saying is that aggrandizers come along and sort of right and i don't i wouldn't want that to trap us in a mechanistic like straight rousseauian idea where inevitably as soon as there's surplus then you have to just have yeah uh, you know we definitely want to retain yeah and that's and that's the thing is like it's you know i think that uh that that paper I sent you with Adam Dick and Reclama Clutzi's, um would be something I, I still have mm-hmm. to finish reading it, but uh, I think that that would be something really valuable to look into just because he is, uh, you know, he's the closest we're going to get to anyone that really understands mm-hmm. like the, those, those process of managing surplus and dealing with it or, or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like managing, it occurred to me throughout that you could interpret these societies as ways of actually minimizing class divisions. I, I mean, that is, yeah, a, but, that's the standard, you know, a potlatch is giving away wealth, right? It's dissipating. Yeah. And it's, and it's tricky because it's like, on the, you don't want to, it's, you, you kind of risk falling into the other side of the the dynamic that, maybe concerns me about Hayden where it's like, you you don't want to sort of portray this thing as like completely utopian. Right. Because like we were talking about earlier, like that's, it's, it's somewhat difficult to kind of conceive of like what a class struggle would have looked like, which isn't to say it wouldn't exist, but Uh you know, it's uh, like these circumstances are fundamentally different and sort of the way that wealth was interpreted now is like um, actually shit. My, my partner, is letting me know that mm. dinner is ready and she has been for like 45 minutes. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Like, well, <laughs> well, so, Sorry, no. um, that's, um, perfect I'm going to record a song and send it over to you because it's, uh, I love it so much. It's like talks oh, about surplus you. a bit, but there's a, uh, with mm-hmm. chief Kitsatsu. So it's, a mm-hmm. part of a potlatch at the end. They'll do kind of like fun songs where they, uh, they're just like very boastful songs kind of talking about stuff. And there's one here about Ulook in Greece and the words are, um, that, uh, yeah, we, which is like, what's the matter? We, what's the matter? Um, and then the words are, uh, uh, which is, uh, I'm throwing all this Ulook in Greece around. Like I'm, I can just give it away. I can give it away. I'm doing it. And then the, oh, the nice. next line is, uh, which is, uh, you know, going, uh, I'm going from house to house and I'm just splashing all my grease on the doors. And then the, the, the next line, which is really the fucking, the scene stealer is, uh, so we saw, which is, a uh, am throwing you looking grease on your buttocks. What's the matter? What's the matter? <laughs> <laughs> and, is like, 
I've still got too much grease. I'm just going to fucking throw it at the wall. And you know, nice. like, and some of the, in, the, in all these songs, there's like a, a refrain and the refrain is what's the matter? What's the matter? It's like, sort of like this chief is just giving away all this stuff. He's throwing all his eulogy grease at your what's ass. The matter? Like, yeah. It's nothing. What's the matter? Are you sweating? Do you not have this much grease? And then the last line is, uh, <laughs> the last line is Nalutsala. So we decide, and that's like, we're going up the river now. So we're like, we're, we've got so much grease. We don't even have enough to give away this. We have too much to give away in this community. We're like, we're going to go visit our relatives and our enemies and Haida uh, Gwaii and Lakhwalams to give them this grease because that's, we're just so rich. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so the there's matter? a, there's a boastful Are element to it. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. The what's the matter means that. Okay. Yeah. So okay. like the, this chief is because you know that's the song that you would sing as he's throwing his fish oil into the fire which is uh-huh. let me talk about sage magic because this is like mm. they, they're called candlefish because i think that there's they would use them for for ignition right so mm. when you throw a thing of you look oil out of fires it's like a real big, big explosion but yeah I, I fucking love that song that's just so funny it's like, oh that's perfect yeah if you could yeah if you could like record that that would be awesome to appropriate to include one of my favorite tunes fantastic this is uh my uh my singing teacher said that this so this is the songs are originally from the wikinu which is like uh so on kopakuwap territory there's like my my singing teachers which are would be over here and would be way the fuck over Mm. there but he was saying that they uh the chief that inherited that song i had to marry three of his sons off to that family to get that song <laughs> chief kikyatsu or robert joseph song originally from the wikinu Yeah. 
Lacha Kalas. It's a chiefly song that's owned by Robert Joseph, Chief Kikiatsu, or Chief Kikitatsu. Uh, it's originally from the Wikinoot. The words are, uh, what's the matter? What's the matter? Or what's the matter with you? Um, it's, um, we were going around the house, giving everybody their grease. Uh, it's the first line. And the second one is now we're, now we're going out into the village and giving people their grease. What's the matter? I'm going to be walking down the village and just throwing grease at the, at the doors of everyone's house. What's the matter with you? And then the, my favorite line is now I'm, Throwing grease on your rear end. I'm throwing grease on your buttocks. What's the matter with you? And then the last line is, now we're, we're leaving the village. We're going upriver to visit everybody, even our enemies, to give them this grease. We're just so abundant, so rich. What's the matter with you? And it's a, kind of a boastful, chiefly song about, about your wealth. I'm Fergal Schmudlock, and I have anointed you with the Yulikon grease of the kingless generation. <laughs>